0: On the Casp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies, and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braugh, and I have the privilege of working on these issues as a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. We have all been watching the US elections with great interest. In fact, I'd say we have obsessively been watching it. I'm still based in London, and it's no exaggeration to say that Europeans spent the week after the 3rd of November following updates as closely as many Americans. I saw a Russian newspaper had a lovely cartoon showing two elderly people in Siberia discussing the election results in various Wisconsin counties. And meanwhile, COVID-19 continues to rage across the world. Many countries are now back in their second lockdown, including the UK, where I am. And in the US, President-elect Biden has made tackling COVID his top priority. But the challenge that we as Western countries face is that our governments can't just tell people and businesses what to do. And in a crisis, that makes things much more difficult, which makes it paramount for us to be better prepared ahead of a crisis, whether that crisis be a cyber attack, a pandemic, or any other crisis. In the United States, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission recently presented a range of extremely actionable proposals for Congress to consider. So there are things that we can do. We just have to plan ahead, and we obviously have to involve all parts of society. And so the question that raises is, how do we do that? Now, Lord Toby Harris is a member of the UK House of Lords and also of the UK Parliament's prestigious Joint Committee on the National Security Strategy, which does what it says on the tin. It thinks and acts on the national security strategy and figures out what should be part of the national security strategy. And he's also one of the UK's leading experts on resilience. Now, the UK, like most other countries, has no national preparedness body involving all parts of society. So, Lord Harris has just created something called the National Preparedness Commission, which launches later this week and evolves the great and the good from the UK in politics, national security, and industry. Energy executives are on the commission, water executives, former ministers, heads of emergency response organizations, and a bishop. For transparency, I should mention that I'm a member of the commission too. Now, even though Lord Harris and I are both in London, the lockdown means we are recording this from our respective homes. So Lord Harris, why does the UK, with so many government agencies and so many people who think about crisis, why does it need a National Preparedness
1: Commission? I think I was becoming increasingly aware over the last few years that we were not taking a systemic approach to preparedness and resilience. We do have a national risk register. We do have, in theory, plans ready to respond to the various threats and issues that can occur. But as we know, the last eight months have been very difficult. And in the UK, like many other countries... We've been in a position where no organization nor any household has been unaffected by COVID-19. And the ease with which the fabric of our accustomed way of life has unraveled has come as a shock to many. Now, the core of all this is it's the duty of the state to build resilient communities. So the weakest and most vulnerable members of society are not affected disproportionately by crises and major shocks. It's part, if you like, of the social contract between the citizen and the state. And if that social contract breaks down, or if citizens no longer feel they can trust their government, this undermines faith in democracy and democratic structures themselves. And I think the dramatic impact of COVID-19 has demonstrated why nationally, internationally, we need to be better prepared to withstand and recover from major shocks. So that was the driving force behind all of this. I think what's interesting is that pandemic disease has occurred, as we know, traumatically throughout history. It's been widely recognised as a serious threat in recent years. Indeed, pandemic flu was uniquely in the top tier of the UK's National Risk Register since it was first published a decade ago.
0: If I can interrupt you, you're making a really important point there, which is that many of the crises we experience are not a surprise, it's just (laughs) a surprise that they did happen. We put them on various lists, and then we thought, well, (laughs) we have them on the list, now we have done our our homework.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the problem. I mean, in fact, we felt that because pandemic flu was up there in the top bracket of risks, we were well prepared. And indeed, there was an international organization which reviewed the preparedness of different countries and said, oh, we were the second best prepared in the world. The reality was actually rather different. And now, obviously, COVID was not a pandemic flu it's slightly different. But the reality is that even had it been pandemic flu, it turns out that some of our preparations wouldn't have been quite good enough. For example, we had stockpiled personal protective equipment for the health service. However, much of it had expired by the date it was actually needed. So simple things like that. We had rehearsed and exercised for various types of events. But again, the lessons don't seem to have been picked up And I think what's worried me throughout all of this is that pandemic disease is only one of a number of very serious risks. You could have a widespread power failure. You could have floods, adverse terrestrial and space weather, terrorist attacks, cyber attacks on infrastructure or services, chemical, biological, radiological attacks, and so on. In theory, there are response plans. We're not really getting to the heart of these issues. And the heart of these issues is that whatever the threat which arises, There are probably some common components of the nature of the response that you need.
0: And that response needs to involve not just the government, but wider society. And I think that's what you're trying to do with your commission, to include key thinkers and practitioners from across society. It is strange, I must say, that the commission didn't already exist, but I'm glad you've created it.
1: Well, obviously, what we're seeking to do is to influence policy to raise the state of awareness of these issues. And I would actually dearly love to have the commission put out of a job, if in a year's time, national government said, yeah, this is what we need. We need to bring together all the different strands of society, make sure that they're engaged in this continuous dialogue about preparedness. The other thing that we're doing with this commission is bringing in academia. And there are lots of academics in the UK, as I'm sure there are elsewhere in the world, who are doing really interesting work on resilience, on preparedness on cascade effects in disasters, on interconnectedness between various parts of the infrastructure. Yet it's not clear to me that the product of their work is ever being fed properly into policy making and into decision making. And that's one of the things I hope we'll be able to capture through the work of the Commission.
0: And so you said you want the Commission to be out of work in a year's time or sometime after that. So what to
1: your mind, does a prepared country look like? It's one where this is hard baked into every aspect of national life. I think we've got used to having a just-in-time society, and we actually have to be ready to have a just-in-case society. We've actually got rid of redundancy from systems because they're wasteful, they cost money. Yet if something goes wrong, it's precisely that redundancy that may be necessary to keep things going. I'm thinking back to the terrorist incident in London in 2005. This was the tube bombs and and so on. I was involved in the police service at that time overseeing it. But I'd had an involvement in the ambulance service up until a few months before. They had taken a decision that they would phase out pagers. don't know if anybody still remembers pagers, but they used to be a pretty standard bar. And so they were in the process of phasing them out. In the middle of the crisis, The mobile phone system went down because it was overloaded. Fortunately, the ambulance service pages were still operational and enough parts of the ambulance service still had their pages that it was possible to use those as an alternative means of command and control. And I think it's that sort of indication that you should never shut things off. In the UK, to give another example, while I'm talking about the emergency services and communications, we're about to move from an existing communication system for the emergency services into one which is based on the same systems as mobile telephones. Now, that may be more efficient. It may be cheaper. It's actually cost overruns are such that I'm not sure it is going to be cheaper, but that's at least the theory. The trouble is, what you're then saying is both the normal person-to-person communication by telephone is on one system, and on the same system is the emergency services communication system. What you created is a single point of failure where previously there were alternative routes if something goes wrong. So it's building in that sort of systemic thinking, building in the fact that you have to prepare for an eventuality you might not even be able to name that I think is going to be so important. And that has to happen at every level of society.
0: In every sector of society, because companies can be very adversely affected, not to say brought down by a contingency, and I think we all remember NotPetya, which was a virus that was subsequently attributed to Russia, that brought down some of the world's largest <laughs> and most vital companies, including Maersk, which is, as we all know, the world's largest container shipping company. We all would not get our daily needs met without the services of Maersk, and yet Maersk was brought down by NotPetya. So, how can governments incentivize companies to prepare when that additional capacity costs them so much on a, on a daily basis? Is it even up to government to incentivize them, or should it be completely obvious to, to companies themselves that it's worth that additional expense because they'll do better during
1: crisis? I think ultimately, that's what companies have to decide for themselves. They have to recognize that if they want to survive, they've got to build in this capacity. And if they build in a sort of agile resilience, they may may find they're more fleet of foot to respond to changes in the, their their economic environment. Now, there are various ways you can approach it. A government can impose regulatory requirements on particular sectors and particular industries. Now, in the UK, there are some of the utilities are subject to regulation. Some of our financial services are subject to regulation. But robustness, resilience, and preparedness are not necessarily part of that regulatory framework. What we've seen since the financial crisis is the financial sector adopting a policy of stress testing, which is mandated by the regulator. And the regulator actually looks to see how well individual institutions are doing as part of that stress testing. Now, that's an approach which maybe we should look at in other areas. The other problem, and this is a really wicked problem in academic terms, is that your vulnerability may not be something that you can deal with, or it may matter less to you than it does to society as a whole. And therefore, how do you incentivize that in those circumstances? The other question to be looked at is, what is the role of insurance? Can you insure against these risks? What are the insurance companies saying to you in terms of, well, these are things you must do if you are to get this insurance, and these are the things you should do if you want to have a reduced premium? How much of that can you build in to make these things more effective?
0: And that's, again, where it's increasingly clear that it all hangs together, because while we may not think of uh, food retailers as particularly important, if they decide that it's during a crisis that they will lose more money by staying open than by closing, then they have Under the current set of regulations, they are under no obligation to stay open, but yet it would be disastrous (laughs) to our countries if, if they closed. And as you say, how can a certain kind of behavior be incentivized either by the government or by insurance companies? Another aspect, from my perspective, is really important, is how to practice for contingencies. Armed forces practice all the time for a range of scenarios that may, well, actually are extremely unlikely ever to, to happen, but yet you do have to exercise for them. How can the rest of us exercise for contingencies, bearing in mind that we may never experience them, but if we do experience them, we do have to be prepared?
1: Well, I think there are some parts of the world where that exercise regime, in terms of preparing for the unexpected, is built into society. So if you're in an earthquake zone, then there will be earthquake practices. If there are, people will know what they should do. I suspect that some of the more advanced civilizations, some of the wealthier nations, have got so used to things being okay, they're not necessarily ready for that. I spent a lot of time over the last few years looking at the consequences of major electricity power outages. Now, in the United Kingdom, I think in most of the US, a power outage which lasted more than a few hours rapidly produces a catastrophic effect. You can't pump water. You can't get rid of sewage. You have no communications. The phone systems go down. The internet disappears. All of those are things that would destroy society. Now, in other countries where the power goes off quite often, people are used to operating without that. I think there's a mentality which builds up that somebody else is going to sort out these problems. This is the individual household level. What is our responsibility for ourselves and for our families, for our households, in terms of what we should do? Do we know? Do we have some of those basics in the house? I like asking, and I've done this with emergency planners, and it's interesting the effect you get. I ask people, how many of you got a working torch that you know where it is and you know hasn't been pinched by the children or grandchildren, left on under a bed somewhere, that you know will be there when you need it? Okay half the hands go up. Yes, we have. You ask them, how many of you have got a wind-up radio? Now, because these are emergency planners, again, half the hands go up. You start to go through it, the different things that maybe make sense to have. And then you get around to saying, so how many of you have got enough bottled water to keep your household going for a week? That's two litres per person per day. And at this point, there's a tiny number of people put their hands up. And these are people who think about emergencies Think about risk all the time. So, what should we be doing to prepare the community, to prepare individual households to get ready for these sorts of events? There's another example I can give, which came to the fore during COVID. And this applies to all sorts of disasters or events. You need to be able to identify where there are lone individuals who will need support in any community. So, in COVID, Because of the lockdown, they needed help with food, support, and so on and so forth. If it's a flood, they need support and help. If it's a power cut, again, they need support and help. It doesn't necessarily matter what the initiating event is. It's the same sort of response that's needed. So preparing for those responses makes good sense because it will help you whatever the event that may occur. And... That's part of what we've got to build into society, into the whole fabric of society.
0: As you said, most of us just don't think about what would happen in the case of a power cut. And here in in the West, we assume that power will always be there. And as a result, we are extremely vulnerable to any disruption. Disruptions don't happen very often, but we are vulnerable. And I think of it as, as a convenience trap. So the more convenient life becomes, the more vulnerable we make ourselves, because any one of those conveniences, if they stopped working, we would panic, whereas people in developing countries just don't take as much for granted, or they they have developed skills to cope with, with intermittent disruptions. One last thing I wanted to ask you about is the cooperation between the private sector and various parts of society, including the third sector, NGOs, faith communities, and so forth, what can be done? I mean, it seems like there is a good, lot of goodwill. <laughs> How can they better organise themselves? So For example, churches can be used as some sort of gathering points for people to collect necessities, perhaps provided by private companies and so forth, because there is so much goodwill in, in, when a crisis happens and people are willing to donate and volunteer, but then it's really too late.
1: I think, again, the more that you have thought about these things in advance, the more that you practised for them, the easier it's going to be. I remember this was a military commander. He was saying, if the first time you meet these guys is when you go into the crisis room, it's too late. That if you've already established links and relationships with the different people involved, that's going to stand you in good stead. So in a local community, and this is one of the things we want to look at, not just at national level, but at local, possibly regional level, are the different organizations meeting together? Do they know each other? Does somebody know who to phone or where a particular resource is? Some of that knowledge is in the local authority. Some of that knowledge is dispersed, but it's making sure it's up to date. A very long time ago, it's over 20 years ago, I was a council leader. I was the elected leader of my community. My chief executive knew that one of his responsibilities was if there was an emergency, he had to make sure things happened. Now, what he did was he delegated that day-to-day responsibility to one of those people he absolutely trusted to get the details right and to get things going, who was the emergency planning officer for my borough. Now, a few years ago, four years ago, I did a review for London's mayor on London's preparedness for a major terrorist incident. And I ran into the current chief executive, the local authority I'd been leader of 20 plus years before. And I said, oh, could I have a chat to the person who's responsible for emergency planning in your budget, just to get a feel for how things are working these days. He said, yeah. His name will come back to me in a moment. I think he reports to one of my executive directors. So this had shifted from being the guy down the corridor from the leader's office and the chief executive's office, who reported directly to the chief executive, could put his head around the door and said, we need more of this, and it would be done, to somebody who reported two tiers down. And the chief executive wasn't even cited on it. Now, as it turned out, when I finally met the individual, all sorts of good stuff was going on. But it's part of that business of knowing what's happening locally. And that's going to be pivotal in terms of making sure you're able to respond effectively to a crisis, which may not be one that you planned for or predicted.
0: And I should point out one of the findings of Sweden's total defence exercise 2020, which is wrapping up as we speak, and this is a pioneering exercise Sweden used to do total defence exercises during the Cold War, which is when you practice defence of the country involving all parts of society, not just the armed forces, but civil society as well. One of the findings from this new version of total defence exercise was that people had no clue What other people's phone numbers were. And yes, it's fine when the internet is up and and your various directories. But if you don't have access to that and if you don't know people's phone numbers, you run into trouble very quickly. So it seems like a small point. Oh, what's the guy's phone number? I can't remember at the moment. But in the crisis, it's not such a small point anymore. Toby, very quickly, do you think, do we have the capacity in our Western societies to get a grip on this quickly or is it? Are we just maybe too relaxed or too reluctant to consider disruptions or catastrophes because it's unpalatable?
1: Well, I think there is a difficulty that sometimes when you describe some of the things we've been talking about, or ones that are even worse, people are so overwhelmed by it that they sit there admiring the problem and they don't start thinking about practicalities. And the more you can break it down into manageable asks, manageable tasks, then I think that makes sense. And also recognizing that everybody's got a degree of responsibility and there are different things that people can do. So at an organizational level, a company, it obviously has a duty of care to its employees. It may have a duty of care to its customers. Does it recognize it's got a duty of care to the wider community or to those in its neighborhood? And it's those sorts of things. Some of it can be mandated centrally by legislation or regulation. But some of it is just about an attitude of mind that this is what good business or good organisation looks like.
0: That's a positive note to end on. Let's not admire the problem. Let's do some of what Lord Harry suggested, which is to practice contingencies ahead of time and not just contingencies involving a power cut, but whatever disruption we can think up. Because if, if we can think it up, Mother Nature can think it up as well, and so can our adversaries. And we should say, I should add, Mother Nature is really an increasingly fierce adversary. We know that climate change is leading to more extreme weather events, so that's something that we absolutely have to take seriously. Tweet me at Elizabeth Braw to comment on anything you've heard on this podcast episode, and please feel free to subscribe and comment on Apple and Spotify as well. Many thanks to our producers, Olivia Leslie and Anya Terrell. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.